The record button has been pressed, so it is time for... Joel's Finding the Flow. Like, real philosophical sort of discussions. You know when people get high? <laughs> it's pure Joel. Don't count your fans before they hit. <laughs> but... We hit a flow in the conversation. Um, I think I'm... Open I mean, your I'm in my mind head. with... I think I'm gonna hit... Finding the Flow with Joel Franklin. All right. Today we have guest Jack O'Connor, um, Captain Jack O'Connor. And uh, he's on the mic. He can talk whenever he wants. Uh, but we were just talking about a little update in my family this week. My, um, my child, Sophia, um, who... Uh, Jack, Jack, uh, is a, a friend of the family. He lives upstairs from us and our, he loves to see our kids and he knows our children well enough. And, uh, and, uh, so our oldest Sophia has, um, has the chicken pox and it was funny. My reaction to it was good. You know, she's four and a half, you know, she's, she's old enough and, uh, get it over with, you know, it's better now than if she were 14 or something like that. I mean, you know, um, some people have the opinion that, you know, if there's un- no unnecessary pain, why, why, uh, you know, bother? And I, I said, I said the same thing. It helps build immunity. You have to, you have to give your soldiers something to fight or else they're not going to be good soldiers. No pain, no gain. That's right. I mean, the, you got to go through a few battles before you, you know how to win. Right? Right. I mean, I, I can imagine, see, I was thinking about it like a little, um, like a battlefield, you know, imagine, you know, what a vaccine means. The vaccine's probably like, um, okay, they give them the blueprints to the, the enemy's, like, weaknesses, right? And they get a little 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 uh, bit of that going on, and then when the enemy comes in, they, they're, you know, they can obliterate them. So they had the advantage, they never really lost any troops, right? But in the real battle, right, it would be with no vaccine, yet you uh, take on that... that um, chicken pox virus and they battle it out they have some some losses some wins they lose some soldiers and but they in the end they're hardened fighters you know and they live on and so it's better off that they're hardened fighters than than being soft because then in the end you know when something really bad comes around you might be a done for I, I think I think vaccines and and sterilization is causing you know um, all, uh, asthma and and allergies and things that we haven't seen before. I don't know what you think. I I agree. <coughs> Excuse me. I agree. The uh, people are so afraid to absorb test pain for what for the message it sends, the positive side of it, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, they got, what, there used to be only so many, there used to be only, like, you could count on your hand how many vaccines you'd get as a kid, like polio, you know, mumps, maybe. And and now there's, like, 20. Well, I, now my mind is not, not made up. I'm, I'm, in, I'm questioning some of them, and whether they do more harm than good. Uh, there's a very profound school of medical thought, a homeopathic, Doctors are not at all in favor of a lot of these things that they're selling. It's maybe it's become commercialized. Who knows? 
I I think so. I mean, and but also there's an element of you know they they they're selling what we want. And a lot of people don't want to ever get the flu. They don't want to ever get someone sick. You know, they, they, if they can avoid it, they will. Well, a dear friend of mine, about 15 years ago, she was injected with the influenza. And she, I never saw anybody so sick from influenza. Yeah. So I, I, I've never, I've never had it. I just don't, I'll take my chances. I let the body's natural immunity fight the battle. Yeah. All right. So so you're Captain Jack O'Connor. You uh how how old are you? Ninety one. Ninety one. When were you born then? October nineteenth, nineteen twenty four, three counties west of here, Sullivan County. Okay. A little a little river town called Calicoon. <laughs> you know, I I always um notice Sullivan County because it has the best sign on the interstate when I head back home. And, uh, well, home being Buffalo, I mean, home's here now, I guess. But, uh, Sullivan County, I, I, there's a lot of, um, Hasidic, uh, advertisement around there. It's, it's like in the Adir- or not the Catskills, right? I, I don't know. When I left, uh, there were very few Jewish families in the western part. And, uh, the family left en masse, except my father, who had just died in 1930. Okay. A different world than in, in western western New York, but <clears throat> Sullivan County and the Catskills for years were famous for their entertainment, their hotels, and mostly with a lot of Jewish trade from New York, which uh, I, I had long gone then. How long were you there? Well, let me give just a brief bio. I think it'll keep it simple. Yeah, sure. My father and mother were born in Ireland. My father was married and had three sons. This is before he was born the same year, Dr. Rudolf Steiner. That doesn't name, may not be familiar to many people, but many people know who Dr. Steiner is. What year was that, 1850-something? No. And that was in 1861. 1861. And uh, he was married. He had three sons. He brought his wife and sons, I think. I guess he had his sons over here in the States. That was pre-World War One. And then his wife died, and he, he became a very successful businessman. He did very well in the Mohawk Valley in the western part of New York State. My mother was was. That's like near um, Syracuse. Hmm? That's like near Syracuse, right? No, uh, starting from Cushek and Calicoon, right along the Delaware River, there, the boundary of the state. Okay. And uh, my mother was born in Utah. Uh, I mean, her her family. That's where they made their home until when they came to this country. Her father was a mining engineer and a civil engineer. You may have seen that famous painting of the connection of the two railroads in Utah, where they drove yeah. the Golden Spike. Okay, I, I I haven't, but I, I yeah, you know what you He was in that, and uh, she she was raised in the West school teacher 
And she was a single lady for a long time. That's her up there, her picture on the wall. Oh, yeah. Nellie McAvoy. That was 100 years ago. 100 years ago? It's a beautiful picture. But... uh, is, and now, if she's from Utah, does that mean she's related to the Mormon uh, culture there, or no? No, they were. Uh, uh, there was a group of Irish that went there that were mostly engineers, and the Normans hadn't hadn't arrived yet. I see. The uh, well, to make the long story short, she grew up to be a school teacher. She taught in a little the traditional little Western schoolhouse. And then there was a maiden aunt that came from Ireland and lived in the States for years, and she wanted to go back, so asked my mother to go back with her. So they went back, had a nice visit in Ireland. This was before World War One, the early 1900s. And this is how my father met my mother. The two ladies were coming back, and those days the paperwork and the bureaucrats so it wasn't too they weren't too careful they were going to let my mother go on board the ship down in County Cork big passenger ship but they wouldn't let her rent so these two ladies are sitting outside the big terminal when this is early 1900s crying their eyes out my mother was uh, still in maybe her 30s my father came walking by. They didn't know each other with a woman on each arm, a, a lady. And he, he, asked, he asked my mother and her aunt what the problem was, and they told him. He said, wait here. Now, at that time, the Prime Minister of Ireland was T.P. O'Connor. My father's name was M.P. O'Connor. And it was a pretty shrewd old bird. He says, worry about nothing. I'll be right back. He came back 15 minutes later without the ladies. And he said, come on, ladies, we're going on board the ship. Well, what he'd done, he'd gone to the government office, told them that he he was was the government. He didn't say he was, but he said, this is my name. My name is Bill (laughs) Connor. It's Mr. O'Connor, you know. Uh So he took advantage of it. Nice. And they had a shipboard romance and came to New York and Ended up in Binghamton. Got married. He had three kids already. He had seven more. And he he died. So, of, so you were one of the seven. The last, next to last, my twin. I have a twin brother, identical twin brother. I had. He was also a sea captain, like I. And then my younger brother Eddie. He was an electrical engineer. He was the last, and we lived in Calicoon in Sullivan County in the western part of the state. And the winters in those days, as you may have heard, were pretty bad. My father caught pneumonia and died, leaving seven young kids under 14. And my little brother Eddie almost died, and the doctors told my mother to get that kid out of here, get him down to Florida or somewhere. So my mother, that rugged little Irish woman, we had a great big touring car, the Oakland, which was the predecessor to the Pontiac. 
ice and glass windows, canvas top, four doors. 1930, she threw us all in that car. The oldest one was 14. And you were like six. I was six. Took off from Florida. No expressways. <laughs> wow. No, no Howard Johnsons, no nothing. We just practically destroyed every, every rooming house and boarding house we stopped in because they didn't have enough food to feed these seven kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm one of seven as well. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you, you have three, three half brothers too. Yeah, that's ten. Yeah. So ten total, but but seven full. I I'm part of seven too. Yeah, that's funny. I was uh six of seven. So you were five and six. You were kind of tied for five and six, right? He made five and six and out of the seven, right? Yeah, I, I was the next. My twin brother and I were next to last. Yeah. And Eddie, the youngest. Yeah, was, I w- I was next to last too. So yeah. so were you were you be- older than your twin or younger? Oh, that's a, that's a matter of perception. <laughs> he said, I came first. I said, yeah, but I was in there longer. <laughs> so we, we never, it never became a problem. What became a problem was my four, si- my four sisters. My mother made the mistake of letting them name the twins. So they gave him the same initials, J.R. and J.R. John Robert and James Richard. I'm Jane, I'm John Robert. And that haunted me all my, all my <laughs> life. The more bureaucratic government it came, the more. Oh, I see. Yeah. But, uh, we got down to Florida in 1930. In St. Petersburg, a little seacoast town on the west coast of Florida, and it was full of uh, Yankees. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard something about that. Uh, yeah. The farther yeah. north in Florida, the more south it gets. The farther south, the more north it gets. I hadn't heard that, but it was very true. The, the, you really get up in redneck country when you get up in the northern part of Florida and the, and the panhandle. They call it, uh, they still call, uh, Pensacola, the Redneck Riviera. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, 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 things worked out. Most of them were people from New York area, surprisingly enough. And, uh, Second houses and stuff. Well, a lot of them were retired firemen, cops, uh, yeah. New York harbor pilots, all kinds of guys like that. I, I, I didn't, I was too young to take an interest in how they maintain their, their families and yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah. That must have been, they must have had pensions decent enough to do it. They owned their house, paid for in New York, so they came down. And, what, what do you, said, what do you call that when people come down to Florida for the winter? They call snow, it, snowbirds. Snowbirds, yeah. Were there a lot of them? Yeah, the, of the, well, nobody had much money then. It was a depression. But That's they, true. They, they show up and they were a different breed of cat. They, they, uh, they, they were down there on a very limited budget. But it, you, you could rent a house for $50 a month or something. But, uh, it, it, it was a nice place. I, that was 1930. And I went to all my, my brother and I and sisters. All went through school together at the same year, mm-hmm. and and that's where I got the 
or primary preliminary education. And then we both, my twin brother and I both wanted to, we were, we went on sailboats and worked on boats and so on when we were growing up. So we were not, and lived on the water practically. So we were, uh, we were drawn to it. We became interested in the United States Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point, New York. Which is one of the five federal academies. There's Annapolis, Kings Point, West Point, Coast Guard Academy, Air Force Academy, and the Army. That's six. And and, and where in New York State or in no? It, it's it's in Long Island. Okay, and, but they're all they're all in oh, New York oh, State. Oh, no, oh no, they, they're all in the, the country. The federal academies are all in the country. Oh, okay. Annapolis is West Point is is a merchant. It's a Army yeah. Academy. Okay. Annapolis is 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 the Navy. Uh huh. Coast Guard is up on the uh, Long Island Sound. Uh huh. And the Air Force is out in, I think, Denver, Colorado. Okay. Okay. So which one did you go to? You said the Merchant Marine Academy for for training, four years training, like Annapolis. Well, you came out, you were a reserve, naval reserve officer. You received naval reserve training. Plus, the operation of the commercial fleet, the merchant marine, is different than the Navy. Their warfare is their game, and the merchant marine is, of course, commercial shipping. Yeah. And you were trained for that in navigation and um, a lot of stuff like that. So... Uh what do you remember anything particular of the training there that that you that's a, me- yeah. a significant memory? Like, was there any? Did you have to do that where you where you were held underwater for for three minutes? No. Oh, the training itself. The training itself was compressed because of wartime. It was down to three years, but we went in forty one. Oh yeah, that's, and, uh, that's like the peak, and, and peak of finished. the war. But part of our time, our training, the difference was, we spent almost a year at sea on as midshipmen on board in the war zone, getting shot at and manning guns and shooting aircrafts and stuff like that. But uh, we graduated in '44 as third officers, federally licensed by the United States government of any. Any tonnage, any size, any tonnage. And you're saying we, you and your, your twin brother? My twin brother. And he went his ship and I went on mine. And we never, we never sailed together. Of course, that probably would have, in fact, did almost cause a con- considerable confusion. <laughs> we happened to end up after the war for this company. It was headquarters in Puerto Rico offices in New York, and we both happened to end up on different ships, but the same company. Well, then he went on vacation. When he came back to work, somebody sent him back to my ship, and the the captain kept seeing this, where we were identical, the captain kept seeing this same guy in different places. (laughs) He called the office. He said, hey, what's going on there? And the, the port captain Howard is assistant. 
Hey, get one of those O'Connors off that ship. Who the hell is Sam <laughs> Two J.R. O'Connors. Two J.R. O'Connors. Yeah, well, then I stayed at sea. So did he. We raised our federal licenses. Went to second officer, chief officer, and then master. But you didn't automatically, like any large corporation, you don't get the job with the license. But, uh, so shipping after World War II was, I shipped to Puerto Rico for a while and then they, they laid up some ships. What, what happened <coughs> briefly during, during, during the war and before the war, there were a lot of little government agencies, the life saving agency, the lifeboat stations, the various other small government agencies having to do with maritime affairs. So the Admiral of the Coast Guard, a guy named Weezier, during the war, gathered them all, scooped them all up, and put them under the Coast Guard. But after the war, he had a big organization, and he had nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he said, help, help, what, what do I get some help here? And they said, well, those guys that graduated from the Merchant Marine Academy at King's Point are pretty bright, and a lot of them have experience on these ships. So they gave me a direct commission as senior lieutenant, and uh, I worked in New York for for eight years. Doing what? Uh, it was the most interesting job I've ever had. Many things. One of them, I was a inspector of hulls in the major shipyards. This is just at the end of the jet age, when all the... U.S. and the major European maritime nations had those big, beautiful passenger ships that ran the North Atlantic because there were no jet planes to fly. So if you want to get across to England or Paris or the Mediterranean, you had to take one of the... The Italian line had beautiful ships. The uh, The British had the Queens. We had the U.S. and the America. And they, they were... But not only that, we had freighters and we had tankers. And they had, under Coast Guard, the Coast Guard was the regulating agency. The, uh, the regulations governing those ships were all covered by statute, by laws that have been in the United States Code for many, many years. Okay. So a lot of these Coast Guard Academy graduates, guys, uh, I'd never been aboard a merchant ship, didn't know one in from the other. But it was before I get into that, <laughs> I was waiting for my commission in the Coast Guard, and I was navigator on a on a passenger ship owned by the Panama River, Panama Canal. They had three of them, because no airplanes in those days, so they had to get three, build three passenger ships to take the personnel that worked, lived and worked in a canal back and forth. So I was navigator and I was, great job, white uniform, stand up uh-huh. on the bridge, talk to the ladies. So that's a long trip. No, I wasn't. It was, to Panama? It was, we, le- we left, we were gone two weeks and came back and stayed in New York a week. It was a beautiful job. Yeah. We stopped in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, First, uh-huh. first stop on the way south. Then the canal. We stayed there for a week. Uh huh. Came back, 
It was a it was a sailor's dream. Wow. But what happened when the Coast Guard finally gave me the commission, a permanent officer, what did they do? They made me first lieutenant, which is the officer in charge of the deck department of a full-size Coast Guard icebreaker, 300 feet long, very powerful, reinforced ballast, sent uh-huh. me to the North Pole for a year. What? what for what reason? That's just one of those patrols? No, it was a. Okay. It was quite interesting. Why we're up there? The we, we were up in Baffin Bay, which is between the west coast of Greenland and the east coast of Canada. And I don't know whether there's anybody censoring this. There's no dirty words, but this is the time of the Cold War when they were spending trillions developing the ICBMs, huh? And I mean, they developed, they could hit a cat in the eyeball at 10,000 miles. Wow. And that's uh, Internet Ballistic Missiles, ICE? ICBMs, Inter- International Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Missiles. And some bright young admiral, or Navy captain, Army captain or something said, Okay, fellas. We got these super missiles. We can plunk one into them and do the uh, Moscow right into the Kremlin. Yeah, because from the North Pole, you have quite a good shot on Russia, right? So the the launch sites were to be (coughs) up on Baffin Bay. They forgot one thing. They forgot they had a delivery system problem. The, the most up-to-date charts I had were Danish surveys of 1878. <laughs> and this is 1955, 56. Yeah. So right away they put a task force together, two Coast Guard icebreakers, support ships. And the icebreakers, we had a, a sharper decks on, on the back end. And the Air Force, it was a joint task force. The Air Force immediately set up long-range radio stations that are portable along the east coast of Greenland, the west coast of Greenland. They had the Danes who were very meticulous about their their geography and their mapping and so on had, had, for, had for years, decades, Maintained a series of of, uh, of markers along the coast, okay. which they accepted. You know, they they surveyed with sunlines and yeah. shooting, and as scientific as they could make it. Okay, so to shorten this up, we we drop off a a crew, a two man crew of Air Force technicians, okay, with portable Loran all along the coast of Greenland. Uh-huh. And all along the east coast of Baffin Bay, and that would get them started right. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and and they flew, flew. They flew uh, bombers over them and made a whole new survey to to Russia. Uh-huh. So finally, got that little problem straightened out. Russia decided not to fight us while we were doing that. Uh-huh. But then, okay. So when I went back to New York. That's when I went to work inspecting ships 
And yeah. the shipyards, there were a lot of shipyards in. Because it was so what year? Of, what year were you doing that Greenland trip? Nineteen fifty-five and fifty-six. So yeah, just basically the second World War Two was done. It was hot between you and Russia, or between it was, the United it was States. It was right. The, the, the hot, USSR. The Cold War was heating up really, really right away. And so uh, you've you've had this connection with Puerto Rico. I'm guessing Puerto Rico would have been a, a the closest base uh, near Cuba. Uh, no. Uh, well, you haven't, yeah. yeah. What I did is they were they were talking about sending me down there because that's that's when the cruise ship and Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs and went ahead yeah, yeah. to go down there to advise it because I'd, I'd sailed those waters and I knew them. But I missed out on that, thank God. But uh, then I, after I, I decided the Coast Guard... It was just too much military. It's, although I was trained in a, a naval academy environment, these guys were lost. <laughs> <laughs> and I find I'm a lieutenant, and I'm getting captains and commanders. I'm training them. So, so yeah, you're you're starting to see you're you're uh, you're ready to move on. I'm ready to move on. So I did. I, I went. Just about this time, Vietnam is showing up over the horizon. I got involved in that quite a bit. Several trips, uh, taking uh, shiploads of explosives and ammunition up the Mekong Delta, up to Saigon. Oh, wow. So where were you starting your trips from? Mostly, it depended both out of California, the West Coast, and the East Coast, because the political factor involved, the East Coast is yelling, how come California port's getting all this business? Yeah, yeah. So they, they even built a new port down in Sunny Point in Carolina. So, uh, I mean, I'm guessing you, you would bring a whole bunch of, uh, you know, ammunition up there. What, would you come back with something? Nothing? No, and... Just to, not even uh, make a trip up to like China and grab a whole bunch of whatever. No, because th- this operation was run by the by the government, a government agency, and they want to get that stuff up there as fast as possible. And they didn't know what they were doing in Vietnam. It was just screw up after screw up. You had a maybe a twenty mile run up the. The Mekong, through the Mekong Delta, the entrance to the Mekong River up to the port of Saigon. Vung Sao was the port, was the entrance port. And they'd form little convoys of four or five ships loaded with ammo and everything, munitions. And we had to wait until the tide was right. Because these were loaded ships, and there wasn't much water in the Mekong River. But the army or the navy or somebody in their genius said, "Well, we'll make it easier." That's when Agent Orange came in. Did Did you see uh, Francis Ford Coppola's? Uh, was it his uh, uh, the movie on Vietnam? Uh, the 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 Apocalypse Now. Huh? Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did see it once. 
Um, I don't remember the Asian Orange. What, Asian Orange, they defoliated all the forests on either side of the Mekong River so that the Charlies could see the shooter. I mean, could we could see them to shoot. They weren't but, hiding in the but trees. But they were shooting back. They didn't count on that. <laughs> We finally got out of that mess, and then I was. But, um, I mean, so you were saying they would they would get five or six little convoys. Does that mean like uh, that they were shooting at you? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so we'd have four four or five ships in a convoy, loaded with ammunition and explosives, and they would just shoot at you, or I just shoot at us. Fortunately, they didn't have large caliber weapons. Yeah. If so, they had so large they, caliber weapons, they could have blown the whole convoy out of the water. Yeah. Yeah, so so you you just basically played defense. You didn't shoot back. No, well we didn't. We couldn't. If if they'd had a, a big cat cannons or something like that, we got something to see. But these guys were all decked up in weeds. Oh, I see. <laughs> but uh, the the worst part of that was. I told you there's, there's just a certain amount of water in that river, and if you take a ship that goes too deep in the water, you're going to get stuck in the mud. Well, our convoy commodore started us up there, and he was a little early, so we got stuck in the mud. Oh, no. And they're shooting at us, and we can't see him. And we're merchant ships. We don't have any... We don't have any armament. In World War Two, we had armaments on an emergency ships, not much, but 20 millimeters and a few things like that. So we go up there and we're stopped, and they're shooting away. And so I send the I send the midshipman down with a heaving with a uh, sounding line which is a line that Mark Twain used. <laughs> this is quite a ways back. Uh-huh. And, and an eight-pound weight on the bottom. You throw it over the side, and you got little knots and markers because we wanted to see if the depth of the water had risen high enough to start the engines. Uh-huh. You didn't want to start the engines too soon. You get that mud in the... Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, now is this also because you're not really able to peek over because you're, you're getting right, shot at? Right. Well, no, we we could start. The, the engineers were protected. They were down below. But uh, a funny thing, the cadet is calling up. He said, this weight won't sink. So what? He said, the weight won't sink. I throw it over the end of the rope, and it bounces on the top of the river. I said, hey, stupid. We're, look, at the, look at the bank. See the trees go by? Yeah. We're moving, I said. Right. Uh-huh. It's just unfortunate for him that the, the ship enough water came under the hull to move the ship. So, were you a lieutenant at this point? How? What rank were you when you were? I was chief chief officer. Chief officer. Now, now, just give me a little bit of a a, a crash course in in the responsibilities of a of a like. Give me a classic um, responsibility of like a classic sail ship. Sailing ship. Yeah, for instance, a huge one. Like, like, the, like, what is a deckhand? The the Joseph Conrad or one of those. I don't, I don't know, but I'm, I I mean I'm sure all the names started from those eras. You know, it's like what would a deckhand be? What would a first mate be? What would like? Well, okay. Uh, well, let's stay with the present. The the 
the present day steamship or diesel motor ship. Now, does that make- is divided into three departments? Yes. The deck department, which is headed by the chief officer, the engine department, which is headed by the chief engineer, and the steward department, which is headed by the chief steward who prepares the food and okay. the beds and makes the beds. Okay, so you were the leader of the deck. Yeah, I was, I was in charge of the deck department. So is that like a step underneath the captain? The captain is in charge of the overall thing. You, 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 if he, he's smart and he's the permanent captain, he tries over a period of time, years if necessary, to get the right officers so he can sit in his room and read Steiner, play opera, which is what I did. <laughs> but, uh, when I was captain. But, uh, the tech department, they were the guys that steered the ship. They were the guys that painted the ship. What What's that word? Paint? Paint? Painting. Oh, painting. You gotta steel. It's mild carbon steel. You gotta keep painting uh, it. You keep banging it, knocking the rust off. The rust is a, an ongoing thing. I it's, see. It's a soft, soft, yeah, mild yeah. carbon steel, and it's the cheapest. And they, uh, Henry Kaiser, who turned out those Liberty ships. During World War Two, turned them out like Model Ts. That's a deck department. They also stand the. So you said steering people, painting people. Who else? Yeah, they're in charge. We're in charge of navigation also. That uh, was the. You stand three watches, or you don't, but you have three watches. Twelve to noon to four in the afternoon, four in the afternoon to midnight, and midnight to. F- Where am I here? It's four hours on and eight hours off. We okay. had three men on duty. We had a, a watch officer, a licensed man, federally licensed, and two, three sailors. Two able, two of them are able seamen, also licensed by the Coast Guard or documented, and an ordinary seaman. He was the junior man, and there were three watches. And those guys steered the ship, kept lookout. And when they went doing that, they were knocking the rest off the ship. <laughs> okay, the next bunch was the guys in the engine room. We had the same watch system. We had a licensed watch officer in charge, two boilers, usually a, a steam steam uh, reciprocating on the old-fashioned ships, or steam turbines on the new, on the newer ships. And then the steward department does what they do: cook, bake. Clean, so on. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so now you you just got uh, uh, out of the my the Vietnam era. Okay. Then then I. It's it's hard to say what the effect that Vietnam had on me, and on and I can understand that uh, so many so many young Americans came back just destroyed. Morally, physically, their sense of right and wrong all mixed up. Pro- propaganda didn't work anymore. From what, from what they were saying out of Washington and what you encountered in Vietnam, it was just a hellhole. There was, on the street corners, you could buy in the newspapers saying you could buy any type of drug you wanted, heroin, would have you, prostitutes of both sexes, it was, 
and the, and the weather was lousy. It was dark. It was under fire an awful lot. It was an awful lot of corruption and a total absence of why are we here? So there was corruption. So, well, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm going to clean up. And a lot of guys did. They smuggled gold home. They did yep. a lot of things. So so they came back with their 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 judgment system just out of whack. And I, I admit, I it even got to me. It was hard to hard to be exposed to that sort of thing, and not so. I, I came back and got out of that service. I started working for a, a company that was just developing, and this was the the big radical change for me and for the merchant marine. Merchant shipping, the age of containerization. What does that mean? Prior, prior to up to including Vietnam, it was all booms, huh? one piece of cargo at a time. Okay. And and, then, and and the commercial when they were in commercial schedules, it, you could stay in port for a week. Uh, when containerization. With those huge cranes, he'd stay in port a day. I see. So, so the amount of time to get cargo on and off was significantly less. And and so, they could build bigger ships, bigger cranes, bigger containers, faster ships, and it just it changed the whole way the whole world trade was was conducted. So you saw some a lot of changes in your life. Oh yes, I, I sort of came through the whole thing. But you saw the jet age come, and you saw the boom, or the, what? Do you, what did you call this? The the cargo? What did you say? Oh, a container. The, the, contain, the age of containership. That uh, uh, that right now is still in effect. You don't you see ships tied up in San Francisco? They're building new ones. They're 14 carrying 10,000 containers, highway containers, one ship. 10,000 like semi trucks. 50 feet long? Yeah. Yeah. 10,000 of those 50 and, feet and, long. And they pick them up, drop them in. Well, to shorten, shorten that story up, it's a whole new world. Uh, and so that's when you got into full on private. Uh, yeah, completely private merchants. industry. Well, I, I was the the ships that ran to Vietnam were, were were managed and operated by commercial companies because they're the only ones that had the experience to do it. But I was went back completely commercial, and now they're, they're building Malcolm McLean, a, a man who had a trucking business in North Carolina, decided after. After the war, to buy one of these old T2 tankers, a couple of them, level them off. Tankers, you know, have no booms or anything. They're flat. Instead of putting his trucks on them. And that started the worldwide trade revolution. Well, once that got started, they are building these huge ships. And I ended up with a ship. I went to work with this company. I knew the people were... Got myself straightened out. I got into anthroposophy. I got off the booze. I just got my life. How, how long ago was that? 
That was in the 1970s, early, wow. early 70s, yeah, that, after Vietnam. Uh-huh. I came back, I quit drinking, I quit smoking, I, I quit eating meat, I became a vegetarian, and I concentrated on my, on my career, and I got, so you would have been in your fifties. Uh, I, I, and I got a cap, permanent captain's job of a big, yep. huge ship. Uh, what that, what that meant was that they're building these ships so fast. Mine was 800 feet long. Next thing you know, they're 900 feet long and looking at a thousand. I, I was the biggest ship in the American merchant fleet for about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they turn them out. They start turning out so fast. So, so I finally got the, the Fortaleza. That's her up there. Oh yeah, he has a picture of of the, his his cargo ship. She's eight hundred feet long. And what's the I name s- of her again? Fortaleza was named after the Fortaleza, fort, a fortress in Spanish. Okay, it was named. <coughs> excuse me, it was named after the government house in Puerto Rico. This was a Puerto Rican company, and uh, that's the oldest. Active state house in the world. All right, so let me just describe what I see, you know, in a layman's terms. I I see like kind of a a um a bro- a tower in the middle, kind of that has like looks like you know all its radar navigation systems, captain whatever, and then I see just the front and back of the ship, real long, with nothing but cargo ships or car- cargo boxes, you know, like the trailers on a truck. Um, and if you look at it, you could see lengthwise, there's probably one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten of these cargo things lengthwise, and then what, like eight, maybe widthwise? And, and, you know, so, so ten by eight, like eighty of those things. Closer to eight hundred. Eight hundred. All right. Maybe I'm at, yeah, they had, stack them on top of each other. down below. Uh, wow. Now, that's, that's something that was part of the growing pains. These ships, they started off with two designs. This ship was like a floating parking lot. It would carry about seven, eight hundred trailers or automobiles, but it was only really effective between, like a ferry service between two ports. You couldn't go to two or three ports on a, on a voyage. Because they'd get these boxes, have to take them off, put them back on, and so uh-huh. on. So eventually, they went strictly to one trip. Uh, no, they did away with the service, and that that ship, that ship at uh, the only one that remained really was that ship. It it it, it sunk off of Florida. That okay. was the sister ship to this one. Oh, okay, and wow. Uh, because they, they they had redesigned part of it to where they could do both kinds of service, but the whole worldwide trend went to just cranes, pick them up, put them back in. Okay, that, that's the whole principle of the game now. And 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 my ship uh, it kept in service for twenty years and twenty five years and. And gave it to the sent it to the far race to be broken up and and uh, so scrap metal. You were like twenty five years. You would have been like eighty. Uh, no, 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 no. I was 
I was 50 when I came back from Vietnam. Uh-huh. But, I mean, when you started... Uh, when I started, I, I was... That was in, in, in the 70s. Uh-huh. So I worked 25 more years. So you were 75. 75. Yeah. Close to 75. When I said, I'm, I'm giving the bouts because... Yeah, I was, wasn't quite 50 and I wasn't quite 75. I had to retire because of a tax, social security, pension, buyouts, complicated thing. I would have lost money if I'd stayed at sea. Besides, it's good for a, a senior captain who's permanent, who's got some bright young officers who needed to be promoted, uh, to give them a chance at the running the ship, so I, I retired. Yeah. So, um, so you lived in Puerto Rico during that time. I had a big old Spanish colonial home I bought in the eighties. With the, what does that mean? Is it huge? Uh, well, it was thirteen rooms. <laughs> For just and, you? Uh, well, I had some friends who were sharing, and. Uh, it was such a bargain. A guy, <laughs> it's funny, the guy that sold it to me, it was in the 80s. He was a hustler and he was getting a divorce from his young wife and his, he had one child. So I looked at, looked at the house and I loved the house. And he also, he had two big German shepherds. He had a big black one in the front yard and a white one in the backyard. I looked the house over. And the dog came over, and I'm sitting back in the ch chair, and he walks over and gives me a lick in the face. <laughs> I said, the guy, I'll tell you what, I'll meet your price, but you got to throw in the dog or it's a deal killer. <laughs> <laughs> so he threw in a beautiful white German Shepherd. I finally had to sell it. I couldn't sell it in the, in the first decade of this century, you know, the, the crash. Uh, Plus the fact the big houses were the hardest to sell. But that's what kept me away from here so long as getting rid of that house. And I had some family problems and other issues. But I retired in 95. I wanted to get up here by 2000. I got up here in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, I'm here and I'm happy to be here. And God love the, the fellowship. I, oh, I started to tell you. How, how I really got involved in this. I was, I always liked spiritual literature. And I was reading on the ship, and I kept running across Dr. Rudolf Steiner's name. And I wasn't sure who he was, but he was the founder of Anthroposophy and a brilliant Austrian scholar, professor, philosopher. Uh -huh. So I, I called the publisher, I got his publishing list. He, and in the, the editor was a nice guy. He said, go down to Madison Avenue in New York. This is now in the 70s. I'm on my big ship. Coming into New York occasionally. New Jersey, actually. And uh, he said, uh, uh, look up a guy named Fred Paddock there. He runs a place. He's the librarian. And uh, I did. I looked up Fred we became very good friends. And that was 1980. And the building is much too small for the library. And so they moved it upstate New York. 
I sort of lost contact. In the meantime, he's helping me build the Library of Steiner books and other things. But what happened, I said, is there anybody in your society in Puerto Rico? He said, yeah. They got the name. He's a doctor. So I go down to Puerto Rico, back home, the ship goes back. I call his office, ask for Dr. Maldonado. Sorry, he died last week. Well, that, that left me the only guy in Puerto Rico interested in <laughs> anthroposophy. The only guy on the ship who was an anthroposophist. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me many years to get up here, but I was reading Dr. Steiner all that time, so I came pretty well checked out in anthroposophy, much to my glory. How often did you, did you spend in that house? Cause you, you were out at sea a lot, right? Well, I, I, I got the house. I, the way it was working when it came to the age of containerization, it never got off the ship for two months. The ship was in port just hours. Yeah, so you'd just be leaving it for a while. Long so time. I, I'd work, I had a... Could you bring the dog with you? No, I couldn't do ah. that. I wish I could. Uh, they, I had, there was an alternate captain and he, he worked, I'd work two months and he'd relieve me two months. Two on, two off. But I never got, I never got off the ship during those two months. So I was ready for a, a break by the time I got off. Yeah, I bet. One of the things I'm proud of, I had a wonderful crew. They were well-trained men, mature, experienced seamen, excellent officers. And I was involved in some rescues. Not too long after I joined the Fort Eliza, remember that ship is 200 feet, 800 feet long, yeah. 35,000 horsepower, and she'd go uh, under, under right tidal conditions close to 30 knots. What what does knots mean? In- knots is about 6,000, it's a little more than a mile, it's an old nautical term. They still use it. So, so, so you like were going like 40 miles an hour? Huh? Like almost 40 miles an hour. No, it's almost... What did you say, 30 knots? 33 knots. 30 knots, yeah. No, that that would be not quite 30 miles an hour. Okay, so it's a little less than... Which is fast for a ship. I bet, yeah. A big big old ship like that. You're you're displacing an awful lot of water. Uh Uh-huh. The the one that I carry away, it means the most to me, are running between New York and Baltimore... I mean, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Baltimore. And it was Christmas in the year of 76, the Christmas season. <laughs> and we're coming up, stormy weather coming up from Puerto Rico from the entrance to Chesapeake Bay, which is how you get into Baltimore. And uh, we're about 200 miles down below, and we get a call from the Coast Guard Rescue Center in Norfolk, Virginia asking us to proceed to a, a vessel in distress off of Cape Hatteras, which is nearby, in a storm. This was a a delivery yacht. In other words, a new yacht that was started out from a boatyard where it was built in Cape Hatteras, which is the notorious storm center. And the reason for that, Joel, is 
The East Coast of the United States coming up from the Keys is like this. Uh-huh. And out here is Cape Hatteras. Uh-huh. And I'm pointing to my right. And the Gulf Stream starts in the Gulf of Mexico, which is a huge river in the ocean, moving at four or five knots. Okay. So it's a massive amount of water moving at a fairly, fairly fast speed. Then the other way, you get storms coming out of the northeast, the famous nor'easters. Uh-huh. So when they meet, they usually meet off of Cape Hatteras, and that tears up the ocean quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So they, these these monkeys got a line in their propeller. It's only 40 feet long, the ship. that the, the Like, like a sea lion? No, L-I-N-E, a rope. Oh, a line in their... In their... Uh, a sporting uh, recreation sailing yeah. yachts they use. If they run into some bad weather, they use what they call a sea anchor. You know what uh-huh. that is? No. It's it's shaped like a cone. Uh-huh. It's on a long length of a rope. And the wind's blowing, the seas are coming. You can only go one way. You can't go sideways because the seas will roll you over. Okay. So you head up into the seas. You throw this thing out. And it comes back and it catches enough water in there like an anchor. Okay. Oh, it doesn't go to the bottom. It stays in the water. Okay. So it's it's a pretty big cone. Yeah. It's a big cone. Well, it, it, these guys were not experienced. Apparently, the shipyard builder hired them for cheap to deliver this boat to the Virgin Islands. Uh-huh. And uh, the weather forecast is good, but they got screwed up. But they were in deep trouble. They were all seasick as dogs. Uh-huh. The the line from that sea anchor got caught in a propeller. They couldn't they couldn't sail. They couldn't turn a propeller. Yeah. And uh, it's blowing sixty, seventy miles an hour. Seas are running fifteen, twenty feet high. I mean, it's no no joke. Yeah. Now they're they're forty feet long, and I'm about fifteen times feet, fifteen yeah. times longer. Yeah, they're drifting away about four times the speed that I. Um, they send a C one thirty, a huge Coast Guard aircraft overhead to coordinate. Extra. So I'm making passes at this guy. This my ship wasn't built for a race. Yeah, yeah. But it was too rough to put a boat, our rescue boat, in the water. And uh, this guy's drifting away at four times the speed that I am because the wind is carrying him. So I made a, a search and rescue maneuver called the Williamson Turn. Okay. You go up and you put the rudder 60 degrees hard right. And when you get there, you put it hard left and it makes a circle. And brings you back right where you started, just like a keyhole. Okay. So I did that, and I landed pretty close to them. So, I mean, what what made it so that you could gain on them? Huh? How how did you were you able to gain on them if they were drifting so fast? The maneuver made like the force of your maneuver because would suck them in. Because I caught up to them. I, I gave her I gave her full speed. It's, okay. And I could do a lot. I had a lot of power. Yeah. 
So I, I didn't want to, but I knew what I had to do once I got in that area. I had to slow the ship down, get the way off of her, and I was close enough to maneuver then. Okay. To where we got a, one of, one of the officers threw a heaving line, got the heaving line on the ship, on the sailing vessel. We, that was on the second deck. Uh huh. Which is that far below the bridge. Yeah. And we had a, we had a pilot ladder. You know what a pilot ladder is? Well, when you pick up the pilot and some, in most ports, you, the ship has to get a local pilot with local knowledge. There's a ladder that goes over that you put over the side and the pilot boat comes alongside. He climbs up, he goes up to the bridge and because he has local knowledge. Uh huh. It would be like coming into Chesapeake Bay, and he gives you gives you advice and part, you know. Well, he yeah he, he 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 takes over really to a certain to ninety percent. So that just describes the ladder, huh? So that describes the pilot ladder. You're saying, yeah, the pilot. Okay, it, it, now, that's what we're using for rescue. Medium. We got these. They got a heaving line to the yacht. Pull them alongside. Those guys scramble up the. Now this yacht, then was worth maybe a half a million today. It's over a million, and I had to let it go. Yep. I mean, I saw a million bucks floating away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what could you do? That was tough. But anyhow, we we got the guys. What what's I heard the order is um first first the order of priority is crew. Then, then ship, then cargo, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy to figure that one out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I um, but that sounds like quite a maneuver. I mean, it it sounds like you had a really big ship to turn like that. I mean, what is it like turning that big ship like that? It probably still turns slow. Well, if we we had the power, remember we had. 35,000 horses. Down yeah, there. so you were able to really drive uh, it. Well, lucky for them, I had that, or I never could have completed that maneuver. You're right. Yeah. And also, I mean, even so, it's a huge ship. I mean, with all the power in the world, yeah, right. you've still got a... That's a well, was it I, I, turbulent? I, I, I used the wind to advantage. I got it on... I, I started my turn... I went around, the wind is coming that way. I went around this way, and the wind helped me an awful lot making that turn. I hooked it up, all 35,000 horses. The wind is blowing like hell, and it moved me around. For I caught up with that guy in a hurry. Yeah. But the problem was then getting that speed off of the ship. Oh, it's slowing down. Do you, how, what are brakes like in, in, in boating? Is that like just reversing the engine? Yeah. Yeah? Interesting. So you know my um, my cousins in the Coast Guard. Oh really? He was actually on the Today Show once because he had this a pretty notable rescue he did in the the Gulf Coast or in the the, the Gulf um, of Mexico. Some people went overboard on a big cruiser, and he was able to save them. But, Good. Yeah, he's doing that. He's now he's stationed in Alaska of all places. Listen, no good deed shall go unrewarded. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so um, now you're you've made it to where you've been wanting to be for decades, almost decades, right? You made no, it to well, the. Uh, uh, let me let me finish off the rescue. Quickly. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. The because uh, this is what I take away from my career. 
the crew worked like like a Swiss watch. It was tough. Uh, we got the guys on board. We took them into Baltimore where we were going, dumped them. We never got a thank you or anything. We weren't expecting them. But we did get, we were named, the federal government gave us a award as Admiral of the Ocean Seas for the year. We also got a, the United States Safety Council gave us their, their annual reward. And, uh, we were wine and dine, but, uh, but the point was, it was the teamwork. The Safety Council gave us a award for teamwork. Those guys all worked like a Swiss watch. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was written up. So I remember that well. I remember we picked up shortly at, you know, in, in the, uh, 90s. Uh, and the key well, off, off the uh, Straits of Florida, we picked up two or three broken down refugee boats, Haitians, Cubans. Yep. But that, all that was was going alongside and pulling them off up our pilot ladder. But uh, that was the biggie, and um, that's the one I, I'm proud of. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, from what it sounds like, you know, your your military training really really was what brought you to be able to take that sort of maneuver into like well, as being a merchant captain. No, I I think that remembering that I was a merchant captain first above all that I was a military officer or anything to do with the military. There's a traditional sharp edge between the two. Secondly, I knew I had a tradition to carry on. That's true. I knew we worked hard to become what we were. I was proud of my crew, and I knew they could do it. Because you don't take an 800-foot ship with that kind of power and treat it like a like a, a rescue launch. And that's what you expect to do. You had no experience in which maneuvers to use, which way to something tells you, and and it isn't just you alone. It's yeah. you're getting some serious, serious help. Yeah. And plus the fact that my crew responded so well, that, yeah. that's what made me proud. And we got we got recognized for it. Yeah. I, I'm not a publicity hound, but uh, I was p- proud of those guys. Yeah, that's that's quite a life. It's sort of you know, it's kind of a fraternal lifestyle you had going on, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so you you were married to the sea, right? I was because Joe, I I was married before I went in the Coast Guard. I married this lovely young lady I met in Puerto Rico, and uh, we we didn't live together. I decided, well, I'm going to go in the Coast Guard. We should get married. That's when they sent me to the Arctic. I was up there for a year. I came back. You can't leave Latin women and their families alone for a year. And I realized that, and I realized I had to make a choice between being dedicated to a career at sea or... or uh, Changing. And I didn't want to change. See, I had too much invested. I had... A war, I had the academy, I had my experience. So it was an interesting life, and I'm really, 
really glad I, I got through it okay and ended up here. <clears throat> These are really like, your golden years, huh? I mean, you, you, uh, so you finally made it to the fellowship and, you know, you were trying to get here for a long time. You got, you got in trouble with, uh, with the house, but all in all, you ended up get finally making it here. What's it been like since you've been here? Just a little bit of that. And, 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 uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about your current, current issue. They, I like to see the lighter and the humorous side of it. When I finally got up here, I sold the house and, End of 1913, and I was so anxious to get up here, I had never seen the place. <laughs> I thought I'd come up and look it over, uh, see what was involved, take the tour, make application if I was accepted. They told me sometime it would take two or three months to get a place to live. Well, I came up here in that December, the end of 13, beginning of 14. Stupid like I put a rake in a a suitcase, khaki pants and a jacket and a baseball cap. <laughs> I was frozen that day. I had the worst cold ever caught the worst cold ever I had in my life. And I wanted to get back to Puerto Rico so bad. So naturally they accepted me right away. They had a place available, I didn't have to wait. And Dr. Schiff, Dr. Schiff and Anne, they interviewed me, and uh, that that was funny. I, I didn't know him well. Did you meet him at all? Just briefly when he was just in his... In I, that's all I did. Very, I, that, that one time. Yeah. And, I, mean, I mean, but it, it was interesting. He was very... Um, inspired to to just talk about you know things i mean it was it was an it was a very interesting uh meeting we had i mean well, it was quite sick then we'll he was quite sick it. but he he really pulled it together for us to like well and i went up it was just him and Ann. i thought it was going to be a supreme court or something of yeah <laughs> yeah and he's sitting over in the corner like buddha and it's kind of dark up there in the garden house and I can't hear because I'm, I'm losing my hearing because of that terrible cold. And Paul's very sick, so I'm sitting next to him. And we're talking incidentals, background. And uh, I can't hear him. And I'm moving closer, and he's moving. I'm pretty soon I'm almost sitting on his lap. <laughs> but he said, okay. He got up after about... 15, 20 minutes, he said, come with me. We walked over to the wall. And have you seen that huge picture when he had his, were you here for the memorial service? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. yeah uh, and, uh, and they had the big picture uh -huh. up there of the black crucifix and the red roses. It was on the wall. He said, do you know what that is? And I said, this is it. If I'm going to make this scene here, I better know what the hell that is. <laughs> and I was right. I said, that's seven radiant roses on a black cross. I meditate to it often. He put his arm around me and says, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I hit it. I nailed it. So, uh, Good. But then I went back. And I went to Kathy and Gracie, and I said, girls, here's a check for 40 some thousand dollars. I want an apartment. 
I'll see you in April. <laughs> I got on an airplane and went back to Puerto Rico. Yeah. So that's about the story, Joel. Yeah, no, that's it's it's very exciting, very interesting. It's it, you know everyone has their their kind of lives, you know, and and you've oh, yeah. you've you've lived a very unique one. Um, that's true. And uh, you're still living today. I mean, obviously, and uh, you you um, I mean, it's part of that is that you're dealing with cancer now, huh? But you're fighting. I, no, it's not even a fight. It's an acceptance. If you have a karma, and I, I do believe it, I do. When I, when I first showed up here, I was going to come up here and become a uh, a hermit and just devote myself to reading Steiner. I've been nothing but sick. I got that severe cold. And then I get a pneumonia. Yeah. And then I get this. Yeah. And I spent all my time with the doctors and stuff. Yeah. I can't even go to the readings. So in a sense, that's is that part but, but, of being old or is that part of being no, here? No, it's, uh, it's part of your karma, I believe. Yeah. And the same thing with the with the cancer. People get scared to death. They they feel oh, cancer, I'm going to die. There's no relief. There's no cure. No, I said, it's not up to me. I'll do my best. I'm at the place I want to be. I wouldn't be anyplace else on earth. These are wonderful people here. They, they'll take care of me, and they have, and they, there's an awful lot of love. There's excellent medical service in this, in Rockland County. I said, if I got a shot, I'll, I'll make it. If, if not, I won't. The only thing I'm teed off about is that I can't play tennis with Joel next year. <laughs> and, uh, and I really sincerely felt that way. I still, I still, it's looking better, Joel, but it isn't a hundred percent yet. So you know that that's part of kind of acceptance. You're 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 easing into that sort of thing. But all in all, you're happy where you are, and and we're we're oh, yeah. uh, we're doing what we can and and staying strong. And you've had quite a life to remember. Well, Joel, I can only say this: that you can these things happen. Whether it's a rescue at sea, a storm at sea. You're either going to get through it or you're not. And, you, and if you get through successfully, it isn't you alone. Yeah. It's it's the help. Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot, my friend. Okay, Joel. My pleasure.